0: Make them feel welcome. Say hello. Start a conversation. Share space with them. Break bread. I think sharing a meal with someone is one of the most powerful things you can ever do.
1: Welcome to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. I'm Edward Krigsman. Last time, we enjoyed a conversation with Eric Reynolds of Fantagraphics, and Eric shared how a scrappy publisher of graphic novels and comics based out of a house in North Seattle has enriched Seattle's alternative arts and music scenes for nearly five decades, surviving the vagaries of a disrupted publishing world by nurturing a global community of people passionate about alternative and classic comics. And while the company has yet to strike it rich using Eric's words, all evidence shows that Fantagraphics continues to enrich our culture deeply. Today, our exploration of evolving Pacific Northwest viewpoints turns toward the South Sound. We get to meet the executive director of an expansive campus carved out of an old union hall and anchored within Tacoma's historic hilltop neighborhood. This multifaceted business is devoted to creating community by incubating a diverse range of music, visual arts, as well as offering great food, drink, live concerts, and more. It builds itself as a welcoming and inclusive gathering spot that channels, celebrates, and seeks to nourish the soul of this land, the people on it, the people from it, and those just passing through. In its size, scope, and execution, it's unprecedented in the Pacific Northwest, and it's been compared to national art shrines like Santa Fe's Meow Wolf and New Orleans' Music Box Village. So today we'll explore the process of folding one's personal life history and vision into the stewardship of a place worth caring for. Specifically, we'll explore how a place founded by non-Native people has been more recently aligned with Indigenous values, supported by a visionary Native leader. And we'll learn what possibilities open up for all of us when this happens. We'll also hear about the important role of a tangible, physical place for building and nurturing community. And stick around, at the end of today's podcast, we'll learn about the concept of rematriation, as illustrated by grape dumplings.
0: Let's drive around.
1: So let's welcome our guest today, Lisa Frucharte, a member of the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma and executive director of ALMA in Tacoma, Washington. Welcome to our podcast, Lisa.
0: My name is Lisa. I am Seminole. My band is Oshesi, and I am Deer Clan. I am a daughter, a mother, a sister, an auntie, a granddaughter and a great-granddaughter, and a queer indigenous woman. I am a member of the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma. My ancestors were Seminole, Creek, Muskogee, Sicilian, and Irish. I was born in Ute land in southern Colorado, and I was raised with the Kenaitse people in Alaska in Dena'ina culture, and I currently reside on the traditional lands of the Puyallup people. And I'm coming to you from Coast Salish Territory, where we're being recorded in the city of Seattle.
1: Thank you. Wow, that's the best introduction ever. (laughs) (laughs) So what you shared was a wonderful introduction to who you are as it relates to your cultural background and ethnic background, but it also included an acknowledgement of the land. So we haven't really featured that on Power of Play, so if you could share a little bit about why that's important.
0: Absolutely. Well, first off, one of the things we do in our culture is we always share our family and our background, where we're from, and it's often a place-based sharing. And so when you take that lens and you put it in this way, it, it also provides the context that I'm also a guest on this current land, which is not where my people come from. And so it also allows me to understand the cultural history and then also acknowledge whose land we are on.
1: So you shared a little bit about your ancestry and background, but it'd be great to jump in a little bit deeper into your journey, where you grew up.
0: Yeah. So I was born like I said in Ute Land in Southern Colorado and at a very young age at the age of 3 and for reasons I've never fully known my mother went ahead and and chose to create a new life for us. So she traveled over 3000 miles and for her it was either Florida or Alaska. And she made that journey by herself with me and we arrived in Alaska just before the start of a winter. And that was where we proceeded to make our home. So that is where I grew up. And from a very young age, by the time we got settled into a small um, Alaskan village called Kasilof, and we lived on the Kenai Peninsula, we predominantly lived subsistently. So my, who I considered to be my father, my stepfather that raised me was a fisherman and we fished directly on the land and hunted and gathered, and that was how we made it through the winter. My youngest years were spent, I lived with my grandmother, my great-grandmother, and then eventually my grandmother after my great-grandmother passed. We lived 11 miles off of the paved road, (laughs) and my great-grandparents built um, a home, they homestead. My great-grandmother was Irish, and immigrating she very much loved to garden. And so that was my my youngest years were just spent in the garden with her, chasing her around. I had a wonderful dog named Bandit who was part dingo, and it protected me against all the bears and the moose and the porcupines and always took the heat for me. So I would say in a lot of ways, my youngest, most formative years were you know, running around. I knew what I could eat, so I just remember constantly just picking and and foraging and eating everything that was available to us and then when I got a bit older things drastically shifted in our family so uh, I would say that in a lot of ways childhood got harder and then my father was later in years once once he wasn't able to make a solid living as a fisherman then he was... Um, unfortunately in in jail much of my childhood Mm. so then I was raised with a foster family Uh, off and on
1: and what was the population of the community
0: (laughs) uh very small I think I actually did look back on Wikipedia at one point and I think we're up to like 600 now wow (laughs) uh Kenai the municipality of Kenai is a bit larger but it's um it's you know I remember when we got our third stoplight
1: As you approached your teenage years, from what I've read, you kind of had an interest in entrepreneurship and you started businesses and things. So I'd love to hear more about all those interests and how you made it all happen.
0: So with my childhood, as I mentioned, you know, there were some certainly some rough home years. And so during those years, it was when the economic district development in the state of Alaska thought it would be a good idea to invite high schoolers to take business courses. And if we wrote a business plan that was a good model then they would provide us i believe it was $2000 to start our first business so i looked at any opportunity to either expand what i you know what my community had to offer or an opportunity to get out of my community and out of all of the businesses that started at the same time i did I, by the time we got to the very end of it i was i believe the only brick and mortar building standing. And um, I think there were only four businesses that actually kind of survived their first year. And how old were you? 14.
1: Wow. And what was the business?
0: It was called Brandwashed. (laughs) And it was um, a thrift store. And at that time, the grunge era was really popping. And I happened to find this wonderful woman who happened to have ironed all of her kids' 70s clothes and put them up in, in some storage. And that became the start of my um, thrift store. And it was just very unique at the time. So it was very successful. And then I wanted to learn how to make candles. So it was a candle shop and a thrift store.
1: Well, and your customers were just community members?
0: They were community members. Um, There was a coffee shop that had closed down next door. And that coffee shop in particular was vacant, but had been built to have a stage and have performances in there. And... I used it as an opportunity on weekends I would start running concerts so I had different bands come through and so I would say that that's really how I first started specifically in events and community engagement I I had very little money so I would have to go to McDonald's and to other places and ask them for sponsorship. Incredible! (laughs)
1: So you became a business person at 14, and then how did that kind of carry forward into your life?
0: Well, I I would like to say that I had many lived experiences, uh, many different careers. So at one point, I, I did close my business down, and there weren't a lot of opportunities in my small town, so I jumped at an opportunity to hang out at the local movie theater until they gave me a job and became a projectionist. And then that was my career that kind of carried me through that and working in in restaurants. And then I ended up in uh, a rehabilitation center in Seattle. Uh And then through that, off and on, I finally was told by someone I had known growing up. They said, hey, if you can just get your stuff together and graduate high school, I'll fly you down here for my wedding. And I thought, okay, well, there's another ticket out. Uh So (laughs) I went back. I graduated high school. And they flew me down to Seattle for their wedding and it was at their wedding that the man that she was marrying, I met his younger brother and he became my husband. Oh. We had two kids <laughs> together and he was from Tacoma.
1: That's beautiful. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. So you married a Tacoma guy?
0: I married a Tacoma guy.
1: I understand you kind of continued your interest in arts promotion, event planning.
0: In yeah, Tacoma, yeah. So
1: besides raising a family.
0: Well, I mean that was a good part of it. So it was very much being around a large artist community, but not really being an artist myself in in that way. And then I started picking up um, sewing again. It was there was a local secondhand store that was downtown Tacoma, and they said, "I always love the way you dress. Would you consider, you know?" putting something together for an upcoming fashion show. Wow. And I thought, well, sure, but that's a big ask. But I had learned sewing at a very young age because we were so limited on everything. So I had always known how to sew. And I picked up just trying to, to go back to more of, of my heritage and learning seminal patchwork design. So for many years, I just, I started doing fashion. And then of course, when the economy took a dive in 2007, 2008, I went into costume design and I had the privilege of working here in Seattle a lot with Zoe Schofield, Donald Byrd, a lot of other choreographers. And then eventually I ended up working from dance and, and to just doing more indigenous runway fashion. And so my last event was... Just before I took over a leadership of Alma at the Seattle Art Museum during the Jeffrey Gibson show. Wow. Yeah.
1: Amazing. So how did that lead to event organization and specifically getting involved with Alma?
0: It started underground. <laughs> so after my divorce, I lived in an artist commune, which was in a warehouse that sits just a few blocks from where Alma does now. And so that period of time was when um, I was raising my, my, I at that time only had two small children. And so we lived in this this artist commune and we all worked predominantly in different service related fields so Mondays were typically our only day off and because we had an an artist commune we did two things with that with that warehouse one is I would throw like anywhere from hip-hop or punk or any kind of shows on weekends that were underground in nature and then every Monday we started having potlatch. So that was a way for me to bridge my community. And so um, I ran a potluck out of my house for 15 years.
1: Wow.
0: <laughs> that existed right up till the pandemic. So that's really where I started bridging into events. And through that was eventually asked to work for the city of Tacoma. And I'd started running a lot of um, city events. And and then I worked for many years um, for a company called Northwest Stage. And... With that, we worked predominantly more in political events and through um, union organization and had even worked like the Carpenter's Union events or um, Obama when he toured the first and the second time I was one of the lead on the advance team for each of his stops here in Seattle. So that really gave me a more well-rounded education and putting on events, and I, for many years, ran a festival called the Urban Art Festival in Tacoma, which never was in the same location twice, and it really became my knack of finding like the diamond in the rough, right?
1: <laughs> in terms of like so, talent? Or, yeah, talent, or but also
0: um, specifically place. Mm. Um, I remember when I put on an event underneath the 21st Street Bridge in Tacoma, and it took a lot of work to get that event there. But then so many people said, wow, what a great location. We would have never thought of putting on a festival wow, here. A bridge. And and now every weekend you see um, some kind of performance or something happening to this day down there.
1: What was it about the 21st Avenue Bridge that made it intriguing to you?
0: It gets more and more difficult to try to find space to host outdoor civic events. And often it's because you have to look for different things from like how level is the ground? How accessible is it? Does it have power? Will it have water? How hard will it be to, to lay out vendors? It just depends on what you're trying to create as well. And I was always trying to create a lot of different offerings.
1: Any other gigs along the way?
0: Um, I worked as a social worker and events coordinator for the Rainbow Center, which is a LGBTQIA resource center in Tacoma. And for many years I developed and was the lead organizer for Tacoma Pride Festival. Wow. And so with that event, you know, was able to see it blossom and grow to where now we see, you know, upwards of 60,000 people, which is pretty good for (laughs) for Tacoma. And then with that, when I left that organization, I was listening to a podcast, actually, about neon and the history of neon art. And with that, that became my inspiration for uh, a local organization that I knew that needed a fundraiser at the time, which was called Spaceworks. And so I put together this event called Neon, and part of it was in just... SpaceWorks mission when it had launched was called From Vacancy to Vitality because so much of Tacoma had been boarded up and empty at that Mm -hmm. time. And originally the Tacoma Dome was going to be covered in neon glass and um, a lot of, especially blue collar workers at the time, thought that it was just a disgrace to put that much money towards art Mm -hmm. at a time when they definitely needed to be recognized for their contribution and their work as well. But with that, what was unfortunate is Tacoma used to have a lot of neon glass, like signage all over, um, and it became illegal to even put up neon. To this day, I believe it's still on the books. And they even had a no neon campaign for many years as well.
1: It was a sign of decadence almost. Absolutely. I think
0: that's really what it was. Uh Um, and, And neon actually changed over the years. You know, when it first, the history of it, like if you look at, When it first came out, it was very classy, and then it became very seedy in the 70s. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, just people look at Neon in a little different way. But anyways, I had put on this event called Neon, and I had heard rumors that some people I knew had just purchased the Carpenters Union Hall. And so I was able to, prior to Alma's being renovated, I was able to put on seven different events inside that space. Oh, wow. And Neon was one of them.
1: Okay. And what was the space like at the time? Probably set up as a union hall. <laughs> you talk about from so vacancy the opposite, to vitality,
0: opposite, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, so the Carpenter's Union Hall was um, pretty much abandoned from its purpose. It had been, you know, when the Tacoma Dome was being built, all the brotherhood was basically out of there. And my knowledge is, is that particular labor hall was one of the most diverse with the largest black uh, union in, in, if not Washington, Tacoma, Seattle area. Mm-hmm. So it has a lot of history to it, and it was a very big, beautiful building that had, you know, a venue space and uh, two parking lots. And then what was extra unique about the building, which if you know Tacoma's Hills, you know, they're not fun. (laughs) And what was unique about it was that on Fawcett, you could enter through one door, but yet if you went up the alleyway, you could actually drive right onto the parking lot. And that is almost unheard of in Tacoma. So to have rooftop access was a huge, huge advantage.
1: And it was how big?
0: 33,000 square feet. Wow, oh,
1: so enormous space. Mm-hmm. Is that all being used currently?
0: Currently, yes. So I would say there's a few smaller sections that we have yet to to fully renovate. But when it was first purchased, one of the first things that was conducted was they tore up the, the parking lot and turned it into the beautiful green space that we okay. have now. Wow which most people don't even remember that it was once a parking lot. So and then the goal is we're we're also just definitely working on working more in permaculture design, landscaping and bringing in native plants. So it's a little easier on the maintenance side of things as well, but it also is more of a testimony to you know what we're trying to do.
1: And then you mentioned that it was your friends that purchased it, you heard. So who are your friends? And can you just share yeah. you a little about the sort of the founder's vision and
0: Absolutely. what you noticed? The founders were three individuals, uh, Jason Hemminger, Aaron Spiro, and Rachel Irvin. And Jason Hemminger had been friends with James Walton, who ended up purchasing the building who still continues to work. His organization is called WEND, and that's who I work for now. But at the time, it was just an opportunity to take over a space in Tacoma, and their focus was really on arts and how to create something that could be stable and place-based at a time when you first started seeing the city of Tacoma shift. So you saw historical buildings being Torn down. You saw the University of Washington purchasing up a lot of space. There were a, a lot of the historical significance of, of buildings or ones that had been dilapidated for too long, but they were being purchased elsewhere. It just it greatly was shifting at that time. So to have physical ownership of of a space, let alone a large space like that in downtown, was almost unheard of. Mm. And what was more beautiful was just the idea, I, when I was hearing about this, I, I literally just elbowed my way in and was like, I don't know what you're doing, but I want to be a part of it.
1: <laughs> what's with the taxidermy bear? That was like the standout one <gasps> I toured Jack! through there. Yeah. So what's, what's that story?
0: Okay. So Tacoma does have a long history with circus. <laughs> And Jack the Bear was actually orphaned at a young age and lived in what was then the Tacoma Hotel. Tacoma Hotel if you know has burnt down twice and no longer exists. Okay. But Jack the Bear was the resident bear and he was typically in a cage, but he really loved beer. And so on Sundays they would let him, you know, he'd have his chain and his collar on, but they would let him go up to the the bar and get a, a beer. And he was just really celebrated by everyone coming through Tacoma. Well, unfortunately, he got off of his chain and he went and had a beer. And he was coming out of the bar and he stumbled outside and there was a new deputy that did not know. And unfortunately, he shot Jack the Bear. And even if you look up the Tacoma News Tribune article, they say, that's stupid sheriff or whatever Mm -hmm. he was. Mm -hmm. Uh They literally call him stupid Uh in the paper because they were so angry with him. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is not the actual Jack the Bear that is taxidermied there, but that is our homage to history and to Jack.
1: So walk us through Alma, kind of the the space planning, the flow and function, all the different rooms and what purposes they serve?
0: So first off, Alma is a place for music, art, food, and culture. Everything within the architecture of our building is significant and means something. Some of it is is a direct nod to the, the carpenters themselves and the laborers that were in that space before us. So when you walk into the venue, you will see wood Everywhere, And that is just a direct, you know, kind of like little love letter to their work. So when you first enter into the space, we try to use color and the color application in order to really invite people into our various offerings. So if you see yellow, it means cafe. If you see pink, it means lounge, so on and so forth. And with that, you enter, we have a cafe that's open 9 to 4. We have a lounge that opens at 4 and is open until midnight. And in fact, our patio is also open until midnight. And then we have a concert venue. It's a 500-person concert venue that we typically, we are really fortunate. We can use it for, for markets and exercise classes and all kinds of things. And then, of course, we also have traditional concerts and fundraisers. We have a great outdoor patio space. It is uh, both covered and uncovered uh, green space and uh, lounging areas. And then we have a recording studio inside the building, which is phenomenal. We can also track live directly from the recording studio to the stage. And then we have a rooftop space. So the rooftop space right now is predominantly used for daytime parties and events and concerts
1: for the music piece, then tell us a little bit about the ebb and flow of musicians and musicianship and recordings and so forth. That What are some highlights?
0: Well, I'm really excited. One of the things that we just started during the pandemic was a similar the, to the Tiny Desk series that happens here in Seattle. Um, we started a recording called Tempo. So we've been bringing in different musicians into our recording studio and recording video with them. And just doing a couple songs, so we're very excited for that. We've been recording through the entire pandemic, and we're just now launching that.
1: Okay, and then how would our listeners tune in to listen?
0: You can go directly to our website, um, and then also to our YouTube channel. Yeah, just Alma Tacoma. Okay, awesome. I mean, every day looks different at Alma, and that's really how we are right now. We have, we for instance, we just had the Bridge Music Project, which is working predominantly with At Promise Youth. Mostly those in the foster care system, Mm. and we brought them in for eight weeks. And so for eight weeks, they were in our recording studio, learning songwriting. And they were part for every fourth kid, they had a mentor, and they taught them songwriting. And from songwriting, then they went. They were able to record their song live inside the studio, hear themselves play back in another week. And on the very final week, we had them up on our stage to perform. Live, wow, and that was phenomenal. And then, what's really beautiful is you saw these kids who are like not really sure about their access to the space, but by the end of that eighth week, those kids run the building like that is their building now. And then, for a couple of them, they've even come back and recorded additional songs. So I've been really impressed. So, so that's one example. Um, We just recorded another podcast that is um, based on an art sculpture that bridges the, the Puyallup and Nesqually tribes and their history with the um, Dickman mill. And then any given day, you can go from something like that to um, <laughs> the punk rock flea market or the native art market that we just had. Yeah, or you can come in and I mean, right before the pandemic, we had like earth gang playing. So, you know, like every day is a different day. <laughs> yeah.
1: So just to shift away for a moment here, because it's sort of overwhelming, the complexity and all this art and creativity and food, is I always ask our guests to share a place in the Pacific Northwest that matters to them and wondered if you could.
0: Yeah. The number one place for me is the beach in in Alaska that I grew up on. Mm. So the Kine Beach, it's a very expansive, sandy beach. And growing up, it looks very different than it does now. Um, The banks of the what come off of the Cook Inlet, uh stop short, and then it, it just sharply juts down into this beautiful sandy beach where there's a lot of seagrass, and um, I don't think I've ever seen it anywhere else, but beach peas. So beach peas, they, they look like lupin, but you can actually eat them. And then the beach is very warm and sandy, and you can see all of the mountain range in the in the far ground from it. And that area is all tundra, but it, you're on the what they call the Arctic Ring of Fire, and it's because all of the mountains surrounding you are all volcanoes. Wow! So growing up, it was the place in the summertime where you would go, and you'd you'd always spend time on the beach. It was warm. You'd have your bonfires and everything there, fishing. And then in the winter time, the snow would get and the ice would get so compact that it would be as tall as the ceiling in this room. And you could even like kind of ice pick your way to the top and jump from little iceberg to little iceberg.
1: I wanted to shift again and talk about indigenous values and the sort of the mission and vision for Alma and what you brought as you assume leadership of the organization and aligning all of that with your values as a Native person?
0: Well, I'll start in saying that I was really honored to... I was first named interim before I, you know, applied for my job and got vetted. And in that time, it was, you know, only three months into the pandemic. So um, you had a lot of time to think. (laughs) And although the organization that was founded was called Alma Mater, it was very much... Had seeds of, of a lot of beautiful offerings, but you know there were certain aspects that, that were at times difficult, like sometimes being too many things to too many people.
1: And what does alma mater mean? I'm sorry. Yeah, for... it's
0: okay. Alma mater. I didn't know what it meant either, um, which is partly why I changed the name. Um, alma mater means nourishing mother. It's a Latin derivative, and it actually often is associated in American culture with the four-year school that you went to. So if you think of the term, like, oh, my alma mater is UW Seattle. I was not familiar with that term, and I think when you look at, you know, what did I shift, a lot of those things were based on that experience of the integrity of the organization was to be accessible by the community, and if the name is not accessible, then that says a lot right there. Mm -hmm. Um, So I worked with a, a group called idea to Form. And with it, it was almost a year-long process on just rebranding us. And one of the things that I did was, at one point, just decided, you know, we explored a lot of other renaming, but Alma was the one that sat the most with me because Alma means soul. And that's the heart of everything we do. So it's powerful in itself. lot of the other things that I focused on one is that we needed a period of rest Alma prior to the pandemic had been open seven days a week it never closed and if you think about it from a just on a a basic facilities level (laughs) when are you ever gonna you know get out the weed whacker and really go to town on something or bring out the pressure washer. And you know, just from that standpoint, um, it was very difficult to maintain Alma all the time. So the very first thing I did was ensure that we were never open seven days a week again. Mm-hmm. So it just created a little more reciprocity with our work week okay. and ensured that everyone at least had two days off a week. And so a lot of what I changed was just grounding ourselves in what we are to our community. What does that mean? And how do we show up? So ensuring that our space is welcoming and inviting, it takes a lot of conversation and a lot of communication. So for instance, you know, whether it be bringing in guest engineers or whether it be working locally with youth, one of the other things that we focused on was in business terms, a few choices that we chose that really came from a values-based perspective were one, opening up our Building, So we are open till midnight and we're all ages. So even if you go into the, the lounge, which is a little bit more upscale or if you're on the rooftop or if you're at a show, it, they're all all ages spaces. And with that is desiring to have everyone feel both like they belong and that it's accessible to them.
1: I wanted to ask you about rematriation, kind of the concept. So on your website, your core values for Alma are accessibility, belonging, creative expression, rematriation, and sustainability. And probably for most of our listeners and myself, most of those, I know what they mean, but rematriation is a newer term. So can you unpack that a little bit for our listeners? And-
0: Absolutely. Uh, rematriation is an indigenous woman's-led movement, and it really is just about restoring and reclaiming resources, knowledge, cultural, spirituality, and even respect to the earth. And I would say that for me, one thing that's important is it's also reclaiming a sense of space. So it also, in terms of business relations, the choices that I make as a business owner, where I'm sourcing my food from, who I'm sourcing my food from. If part of our purpose is to have sustainable practices, well, then how is that exemplified in both the large and the small, the seen and the unseen of my business practices? So that's very important to me and also aligns with indigenous values. When we talk about indigenous foods, for instance, indigenous foods have and always will be based on what is local, what is sustainable. And in order to ensure that we're keeping that practice, we work predominantly, and we are constantly trying to build our partnerships with agriculture that is very hyper-local. So even small farms, you know, there's been a power dynamic within agriculture and specifically with with restaurants and food supply, where there's been a demand on farms to supply a particular product. And I think if anything, last year was one of the examples of, of how that system is so, so broken. And I recall there was a moment where we had oysters on our menu because we had worked with a local oyster farm, and then the heatway happened. And we had 110-degree weather in Tacoma, which had even melted an art project that was sitting outside. But yet we had customers that were still coming in and demanding oysters and were upset when we didn't have them. And I remember at one moment, I I had talked to this couple and said, I just want you to to know that you can continue to call all the different restaurants here locally to try to find oysters. But with the heat, all of the oyster farms are being wiped out right now. And they had never thought of that. They'd never thought of the fact that that was stopping what they wanted (laughs) to be able to eat for dinner that night. And... I realized that then as a business owner, I also have a responsibility to educate on what is sustainable, what is local. And it just, it changes the dynamic a little bit. I also, my dream is to get to a place with local farms and and within agriculture to where I can show them, here's my menu for the year. This is kind of what I'm thinking what are you able to contribute or, or what would you like to grow? Because I don't need to dictate what kinds of greens are in my salad. or what is, Like, I really need them to tell me what's available. I can fluctuate. I can change my menu at any time. But it's only going to be based on what, what can be grown and what can be available based on our, our current climate.
1: So tell us about the restaurants themselves.
0: Yeah, we have one kitchen now. Um, prior to the pandemic, we had two. And I mean that, Liz, and we had one physical space, but so we had two chefs with different different styles of cooking. Um, we have simplified, and so we have just all my kitchen now. And the food that we create is seasonal. It shifts every equinox and solstice. And we just keep it local, fresh, yeah. uh, indigenous fusion. And the kitchen is where the food is all coming from, but then we offer it... Outdoors in the patio, we offered it inside the cafe, which looks more like a, a more brunch breakfast menu. And then we also offer it in our lounge.
1: Okay, and then what are grape dumplings? <laughs> or, and how does that does that is that factor into this? Yeah, Converses. absolutely.
0: So I'm really excited that one of the things that we started to work on during the pandemic was bringing in guest chefs, and we wanted to be able to highlight a lot of different indigenous cultures and different indigenous chefs that are out there. But we knew that our kitchen had never done that before, so we decided to start with me. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to, for our fall menu, I'm going to get to share a family recipe, which are grape dumplings. And grape dumplings are more specific to the Southeastern tribes people. They were originated from possum grapes, and possum grapes were similar to Concord grapes. And have you ever had fry bread? Of course, okay. yeah. So it, you, it's a similar type of process, as, except for you're taking grapes and you're creating a deduction. And with that reduction, then you are using that juice in with the flour mixture to make like a very soft, supple dough, like a dumpling or like fry bread. And then with it, you boil it directly back into the grape reduction and you can serve it either sweet over ice cream or anything like that. That's how my kids like it. Or you can serve it savory, like the way that my mother did. And when it served savory, my favorite dish growing up was my mother would take acorn squash and have it. And then after she baked it with a little bit of, of butter and brown sugar, she'd fill it with like wild rice and whatever vegetables you had in your pantry and maybe some um, you know ground meat of some sort and then with grape dumplings over the top of it. It's a very unique, but very, very delicious and very nourishing dish.
1: Well, we asked our guests to bring in something physical into the studio. Um, were you able to do that?
0: I did. I started the story earlier, but this is when when my, I said my mother first left Colorado and very suddenly and abruptly moved and it didn't tell, um, really fled actually to Alaska with me as a young child. When we first arrived in Anchorage, a I think the story is very unique the older I get, but One, it was very brave for my mother to leave when she did. And two, she didn't know where she was going or who she was meeting. And my grandmother had arranged for a woman that she had known at a restaurant who was a Guatemalan woman. And this was after Guatemala's civil war. She had fled with her family from Guatemala to Alaska. And so this Guatemalan woman had a Volkswagen, so she had picked us up at the airport And when she picked us up, we only had a few um, bags of everything we owned, and that was strapped to the top of the car. And as a treat, she invited us to go to McDonald's because we had a 300-mile drive ahead of us. And for the last leg of our journey, we went inside, and while we ate, someone broke the ropes off the top of the car and stole everything that we had, Uh with the exception of one bag. And that one bag had... You know, as a a small girl, I had no toys and we had just lost all our clothes and it was about to be winter in Alaska. So this family took us in and this was the single toy that was in one of the bags that my mother had packed on top of that car. Mm. And so this was literally the only thing from my childhood that I still have. And it plays, it's a little radio and it plays, um, somewhere over the rainbow.
1: That's beautiful. But yeah. And then
0: this was, uh. Because the woman um, had predominantly sons, she I had to wear the son's clothes. And so she gave me this belt to be able to hold my pants up. <laughs> and so this, this has a lot of meaning for me. Uh-huh. And then, um, yeah, I'm just very, very glad to still own it. And then the older I get, the more I think about how this woman could see the journey that my mother was on based on her own. And one of the things was she encouraged my mother to go Get her GED and go to school. And that impacted me because I got to sit in those classes. And after she graduated, she was the first in her family to get a diploma or get a GED. I was the first to get a diploma. And then my eldest son, Ezekiel, was the first in our family to go to college. Wow. So I, yeah, That's I, think, incredible. I think about all of those little pathways through this little tiny toy radio.
1: You've attracted people into all kinds of places, you know, from under bridges to this, you know, incredibly vast and beautiful arts venue. So are there any core learnings that you have about what it takes to attract people into a place and make them want to stick around and come back?
0: Make them feel welcome. Say hello. Start a conversation. Share space with them. Break bread. I think sharing a meal with someone is one of the most powerful things you can ever do. And it bridges us together.
1: Thank you so much for showing up here and accepting my invitation to join us today. Thank you. And speaking of invitations, if you'd like to experience Alma yourself this summer, check out almatacoma.com or come by and explore Alma Kitchen's menu honoring indigenous foodways or visit the Native Art Market the weekend of August 13th and 14th. Join us next time when our guest will be Stephanie Lyle, director of Gig Harbor's Harbor History Museum, together with the museum's shipwright, Riley Hall. And why does the museum employ a shipwright? To chronicle the importance of shipbuilding over the years to that community. And when you go to this place, you'll get to walk through a 96-year-old purse skeiner called the Shenandoah, whose restoration is a work in progress overseen by Riley. You also get to see the first production model of the Thunderbird, a small boat, and a classic of mid-century design by local Pacific Northwest yacht designer Ben Seaborn. It was created after a local lumber business association challenged boat designers and boat builders to create a vessel comprised entirely of plywood. And that was back in 1957. But I'm getting ahead of myself. This and other stories of Gig Harbor's boat-building culture must wait for our next episode. Until then, thank you for joining us for Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. Sound engineering by Daniel Gunther. Photography by Brandon Williams. Administrative support from Mary Monsoor. Theme music written by Toma Nakayama and performed by Grand Hallway, with additional music by Andrew Weathers, as well as by Ryan Love and performed by Fox Hunt. This episode also featured the music of Earth Gang from Atlanta, Georgia, recorded live at Alma. We record in Seattle's historic Jack Straw Cultural Center. I'm Edward Krigsman. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a review or subscribe to us. And if you know of a place in the Pacific Northwest that matters to you, please tell us about it. We'd love to hear your stories.